One of Massachusetts senators on Capitol Hill continues to speak out against President Biden's authorizing a massive oil development project on federal land in Alaska. Ed Markey calls it a mistake we'll regret for generations. The senator's coming up on this Thursday, March 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, China society is aging fast and that is straining public welfare systems. More young Chinese are turning to private pension funds because they fear the state won't be able to help them as they grow older. And a New Hampshire Girl Scout realized that all those thin mints and s'mores she's been selling are made with palm oil. Palm oil causes 2% of major deforestation and climate change. So she decided to make her own cookies and donate the profits to her troop. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Several of the country's biggest banks are now banding together to prevent First Republic from being the next bank to fail. The group, which includes J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo and Citigroup, are pledging deposits of a combined $30 billion to rescue First Republic, providing a welcome reprieve to the California lender and relief to Wall Street, which saw sharp declines after two regional banks in California and New York collapsed last week. Major market indices are up 1% to 2.5% at the close. We'll have more numbers at the end of the of the newscast. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sought to reassure members of Congress and the American people today about the stability of the U.S. banking system. Here's NPR's Scott Horsley. In testimony to the Senate Finance Committee, Yellen said the federal government is committed to protecting bank customers. She outlined the extraordinary measures taken by the FDIC and the Federal Reserve last weekend to shore up public confidence after the sudden downfall of Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank in New York. I can reassure the members of the committee that our banking system is sound and that Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. Yellen stressed no taxpayer money is being used to backstop depositors at the two failed banks. Instead, any additional money needed will come from fees paid by other banks. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Not only did Russian fighter jets tangle with a U.S. military surveillance drone over the Black Sea, NPR has confirmed that U.S. officials believe senior Russian officials actually approved it. This, hours after the Pentagon released a short video that appears to prove a jet hit the drone, forcing the U.S. to crash it into the Black Sea. Here's Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder. The United States does not seek conflict with Russia. We do not seek escalation with Russia. Uh, And so we're going to continue to stay focused on our primary uh, mission in the Ukraine area, which is supporting Ukraine in its fight. Contact between the U.S. and Russia has been limited since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine over a year ago. The president of Mexico says he will meet with roughly a dozen American lawmakers this weekend. NPR's Ada Peralta with the latest. In the past few weeks, Republican lawmakers have heavily criticized Mexico, blaming it for flooding the U.S. with drugs and even suggesting an American invasion. Mexico dispatched its foreign minister, who said the U.S. is the one fueling violence in Mexico, with its unending demand for drugs and its uncontrolled gun market. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador said the lawmakers are expected in the coastal town of Veracruz this weekend. Vamos a tratar tema migratorio. He says they would talk about immigration, the free trade agreement, and security. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Mexico City. 
The Dow is up 371 points or more than 1 percent. The S&P is up 1.7 percent. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Spring should bring lower electricity bills to national grid customers in Massachusetts. The utility said today is proposing new rates. They would start in May and run through October. WBUR's Irina Machavaran-Variani reports. If state regulators approve, national grid electricity bills are expected to go down by 39 percent. That would save a typical customer about $100 each month compared to what they are paying now. National Grid spokesman Bob Kevra hopes this brings relief after a winter of record high bills. He says the uptick was fueled by unpredictable natural gas prices. Natural gas prices have a significant impact on the cost of electricity particularly here in New England, where about 50 to 55 percent of our electricity comes from natural gas-powered plants. Prices for natural gas are affected by factors that include inflation and global conflict. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani. Meanwhile, electricity rates for Eversource take effect in July. It'll be another few months before the utility sets those rates. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking the city council to approve a new policy to discourage the use of fossil fuels in new Boston buildings. Wu said today the building codes in her her administration is pursuing encourage developers to use all-electric hookups. It would do so by imposing higher costs on projects that install gas hookups for heating and cooking. At the same time, the mayor announced today the city will commit $10 million to make existing multifamily affordable housing projects more energy efficient. The state's first cabinet-level veteran secretary is getting to work. Governor Maura Healy appointed John Santiago earlier this year. He tells WBUR he's happy Massachusetts is dedicating more resources to its veterans, and he's proud to lead the effort. Sometimes like people like to tag these folks as completely separate and different, um, but a lot of times they're just your next-door neighbor. They have a job, they're doing well, they're college-educated. They're not all suffering from homelessness, mental health issues. Sometimes they are, and that's why we're here to provide services for them. Santiago is an Army veteran and a former ER doctor. Flags outside the Massachusetts State House are flying at half-staff in honor of a former lawmaker who was known as a champion for veterans. Gloucester Democrat Anthony Verga died last Friday. He was 87. He served in the state legislature from 1995 to 2009. His funeral will be held tomorrow. 49 degrees now in the Boston area. Clouds have rolled in. Should last through the night tonight. Temperatures about 35 overnight. Tomorrow should be another pretty mild day, possibly reaching the low 50s. More clouds, though, tomorrow. Should see some sunshine move in for Saturday, eventually comfortable. Right about 50. Then for Sunday, lots of sun, but windy and cooler. Back down to about 38. 49 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The uppermost part of Alaska is called the North Slope. It contains a national petroleum reserve roughly the size of the state of Indiana. This week, the Biden administration approved a major new oil extraction project in that federal reserve, the ConocoPhillips Willow Project. The decision has divided Democrats. Supporters say it will provide jobs. Opponents say it makes it harder to slow climate change, including Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who chairs the Senate Subcommittee on Clean Air, Climate and Nuclear Safety. Welcome to All Things Considered. 
No, great to be with you. Thank you. You have called this decision an environmental injustice. Do you think the thousands of jobs that supporters say it will create are not worth the trade-off, or are you skeptical that this actually will provide that number of jobs? Well, the question is, what is the long-term impact to our planet? What additional consequences are there to the additions to not only what damage we're doing to the planet, but what example it's sending to other countries in the world. So President Biden has been the most effective climate champion the Oval Office has ever seen. He signed into law the most ambitious climate and clean energy legislation in our history. And unfortunately, this decision sends the wrong message to international partners, to Alaska natives and local communities. Uh, to whom the project poses a health and safety threat. But federal lawmakers who represent Alaska from both parties support this plan. Here's Democratic Congresswoman Mary Peltola, the first Alaska native in Congress, speaking with Liz Ruskin of Alaska Public Media. Yes, I agree. There is a climate crisis, but the whole world can't tell Alaska to shutter its business until the world has, has come up with solutions. Senator Markey, you represent the people of Massachusetts. Why do you think your views should outweigh those of Alaska's delegation? Well, I hope my colleagues are also speaking to uh, Alaska natives who have raised the alarm on what this project will mean for the Inupiat communities who live in the region. Uh, Alaska native communities are already seeing their very way of life threatened as they suffer from rising temperatures and other impacts of the climate crisis. And I've been talking to those Native American communities in Alaska as well, and their voices should be heard and considered. Now, environmental groups have filed legal action to block drilling. And so where do you see this going? Do you expect it to be tied up in court for a long time? Well, I am um, I'm glad to see that there are bold advocates in Alaska and across the country who are willing to do everything in their power to reverse this decision. Um, Obviously, uh, we're moving towards an all-electric vehicle future in our country and on the planet. Uh, And every new electric vehicle displaces a car which would be using oil. So from my perspective, we need to continue to fight this project uh, as an innovation clean energy revolution rapidly unfolds because of the Inflation Reduction Act that Joe Biden led uh, and uh, signed into law. You say we're moving toward an all-electric vehicle future, but we're not there yet, and the U.S. right now still depends on fossil fuels, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine made very clear. Is there a danger that if the U.S. stops new oil production before renewable alternatives have scaled up to meet the country's energy demands, there will be a gap? No. Our goal in the United States is to have 50 percent of all new vehicles be electric by the year 2030. But Uh, the question is whether electricity production, solar production, wind production, renewable production generally meets the demand for energy in the United States, even if the assembly lines are churning out the electric vehicles. Well, in the amount of time it would take big oil to finally fulfill their long broken promise of making us energy independent, We could replace that demand for dirty oil with a demand for clean energy like wind and solar and all electric vehicles and battery storage technologies. So 
my belief is that we are now going to see a vertical path for implementation of each of those new technologies. The private marketplace is responding dramatically. Uh, and uh, from my perspective, big oil really doesn't care about consumers. They care about corporate profits. Uh, that's what they're focused on. And uh, by the time, you know, we have finished this battle, we will have seen the big oil business plan uh, destroyed, uh, both here and around the world. Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, thank you very much. Thank you. As Senator Markey mentioned, ramping up renewable energy is key to the U.S. plan to fight climate change. But there is a growing backlash against big wind and solar plants in some parts of rural America. An investigation by NPR's Michael Copley and Miranda Green from Floodlight found that a longtime conservative operative is stoking opposition to solar projects by spreading misinformation. Roger Hauser's family has been farming in Page County for generations. He raises cattle about 90 miles southwest of Washington, D.C. Twelve hundred pound cows. Those calves are 150 to 200 now. They were born in September and October. Ranching's tough business. Calves have been selling for about the same price the past few years, while costs for fuel and fertilizer have been going up. We're as sustainable as we can be. And we take good care of the land. But <laughs> we're running out of time. So it was a big deal when Hauser found another use for his 500 acres. A company offered to lease the land to build a solar plant that could power about 25,000 homes. Hauser says it was a good offer. He could graze sheep around the solar panels, keep the properties one parcel, and get more money for retirement. And then the main thing was the electricity it would generate and the good it would do made it feel good all the way around. But not everybody's feeling good about it. A group of locals eventually joined forces with a nonprofit called Citizens for Responsible Solar to block development of large solar plants. A big concern was they'd ruin the landscape. It's beautiful out here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's open ground, but it's like, you know, some panels on it, it's not gonna change it. Citizens for Responsible Solar was founded by Susan Ralston. She was special assistant to former President George W. Bush. Ralston officially jumped into solar fights in 2019. She wanted to stop a project near her home in Culpeper, Virginia. She said at the hearing of Culpeper's Planning Commission in 2021, the big solar plants threaten rural communities and the environment. So please do not sell us out for the solar industry and the profiteering of a small group of landowners. But Ralston's ambitions always seem to extend beyond Culpeper. She tapped operatives who work behind the scenes with some of the most powerful people in conservative politics, to help set up and run Citizens for Responsible Solar. The group's treasurer worked for Republican politicians like Marco Rubio and J.D. Vance. The firm that handles official paperwork for Citizens for Responsible Solar has represented at least two dozen conservative groups. Some were headed by Leonard Leo, a conservative who's helped reshape the Supreme Court. NPR and Floodlight haven't confirmed if these groups are connected to Citizens for Responsible Solar. And when Ralston was launching Citizens for Responsible Solar, a consulting firm she owns got almost $300,000 from the foundation of a GOP donor named Paul Singer. Singer's investment firm is the top shareholder in a major coal company. It's unclear what that money went to. Now, four years since its founding, Ralston's group has helped activists fighting solar projects in at least a dozen states. Jim Thompson's an activist in Ohio. We spoke while he was driving home from work. There's times you get down in the valleys and you don't know that you're making a darn difference and you reach out to people like Susan and share your frustration. Can you get some insight as to what you might be doing wrong? 
Michael Berger runs the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University. He says Ralston's activities reflect how climate change has been politicized. What your reporting is pointing to is a well-mobilized, well-funded national effort to foment local opposition to renewable energy. Ralston has said Citizens for Responsible Solar didn't get money from fossil fuel interests. She declined to talk to NPR and Floodlight. She said in an email that she isn't opposed to solar, just projects built on farmland and timberland. But her group's rhetoric suggests a broader goal, undermining public support for the industry. That's according to Ronald Myers. He studies siting issues around renewable energy at Virginia Tech. People often have valid concerns about solar plants. They can hurt communities if they're poorly planned and built. But Meyer says Citizens for Responsible Solar spreads misleading information about health and environmental risks, including that solar projects in rural areas wreck the land and contribute to climate change. I've sure seen their impact. It sowed seeds of alarm and distrust. In Page County, Hauser says he heard positive feedback at first when a solar company offered to lease his land. But then he says local politics got involved. Anybody can stay end up in a public hearing and say anything, regardless of the facts or science or whatever. Residents said big solar plants would cause problems with stormwater runoff, ruin their views, and harm property values, along with the tourism and agriculture industries. Others falsely claimed solar panels would poison the groundwater, cause cancer. As the fight dragged on, a group called Page County Citizens for Responsible Solar appeared on Facebook. Ralston's organization applied pressure, too, saying it hired a law firm to investigate the county's actions. It all ended last year. Page County effectively banned big solar plants. One official said he worried they'd hurt existing businesses without creating any long-term jobs. I mean, a lot of people still comment to me that they supported it and they wished it could have happened. But Hauser doesn't know how he could have gotten the county to a different outcome. The anti-solar people took it on as a cause and it became a movement of its own. In small-town politics, you can have a small group of people become very vocal and seem very influential. Money's flowing into America's solar industry, and government analysts expect record development this year. All that growth means land use fights like the one in Page County are going to keep flaring up. Michael Copley, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon on All Things Considered. Coming up in California, floods have turned berry fields in a Monterey County community into small lakes, and that has left workers without jobs, food, and in some cases, a place to live. Stocks ended the day on the upside on Wall Street. The Dow grew by one and two-tenths percent. S&P picked up even more territory. It rose one and three-quarters percent, and the Nasdaq grew by nearly two and a half percent. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is speaking out still about the failures of the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Today, she sent a letter to the former Signature Bank CEO, Joseph DiPaolo, She asks him to explain what she calls excessive risk-taking by the bank and his efforts to support banking deregulation in 2018. Warren also sent a letter to Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. She blames his support of deregulation for the bank's collapses. It's 420. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com Clouds this afternoon. Clouds tonight, about 35 for a low. Tomorrow, clouds yet again. Should reach about the low 50s again. And then for Saturday, should be gray for the start of the day. Sunshine later on, up around 50 degrees. Mostly sunny but cooler on Sunday. Highs about 38. 50 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. There's a new movie that I love called Chang Can Dunk. It's not about me. I mean, believe me, this Chang cannot dunk. I will never be able to dunk. But Bernard Chang is this five foot eight, 16 year old in the marching band who makes a bet with his high school's top jock that in only 12 weeks, he too will be able to dunk a basketball. You know, from a screenwriter's perspective, you're always looking for like a metaphor that's really simple and uh, also universal. And the dunk is such a powerful, I mean, it's like top three sports moves. Like there's a home run, there's the knockout in boxing, and then there's the slam dunk. Jing Yi Xiao wrote and directed Chang Can Dunk, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. His title character attacks his singular goal with obsessive focus, waking up at the crack of dawn every day with a dunking coach. When you take off, I want you to think about destroying the ground and jumping toward the sky. Destroy the ground and jump to the sky. And all the while, Chang's mom, an immigrant and single parent, watches this quest with frustrated confusion. Why dunking? What can he do with this dunking thing? I don't know, but that's what he wanted to do. Filmmaker Jing Yi Xiao told me he based so much of his main character around his own personal experiences as a teenager. Did I read that you were a teenager in the 1990s like I was? <laughs> um, yes. The late 1990s. Oh, you're trying to to make me feel not old. I love that. That's so sweet of you. Well, let me ask you, what would it have been like for you to see a movie back when you were growing up as a teenager that starred an Asian teenager? Would that have made a difference to you? Uh, It would have meant everything to me. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents are immigrants. And um, you from know, where? From China. Yeah, where in yeah, China? Yeah, I'm actually an immigrant myself. I was born in Shanghai, and I came oh, over I when I was a baby. Mm-hmm. But so I consider myself a second generation. And I think that like what's tougher, like immigrant kids, is you can't go to your parents sometimes for advice on how to like fit in in American exactly. high school. I mean, my parents grew up in, you know, communist China. They were in the Cultural Revolution. My dad didn't oh. go to high school because he was, you know, sent to the countryside. So he doesn't even know what high school is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah. so for him to try and guide me through high school is really tough. You know, like, it's a guessing game. how's he going to know what I'm supposed to wear to prom? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, Dad, I need to look cool, okay? This is, this is my one chance. And then, oh, uh, I would never take fashion like, advice from my parents. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's like, why do you have to get a flower in, in this plastic? Uh, anyway, what happens, I think, is you search 
for how to do that through media. Like, how do I, how do I become cool? Believe it or not, I loved sports coming of age films. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know these these underdog kids who I saw myself in yeah. would strive and they would prove to their peers that they were worthy. Um, but in those stories, like they always had a supportive parents who understood, mm-hmm. right? Who, un- who could see what the kid was going through. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my relationship with my family has evolved a lot. But I, it, would, it would hurt sometimes when I watch those films and I'm like, oh, why isn't my family like that? Just to so, support it. Exactly. Or support me in the way that I really wanted them to, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so to have seen a film like this and just to know that this kind of family exists, that it's okay, that you that your evolution is part of your family's evolution would have been so much to me. Your movie gets at this idea that a lot of teenagers have. I mean, heck, a a lot of adults have. And that idea is, if I can just do this one thing, be this one way, my life will be magically better. And then you realize later on in life, feeling seen isn't about that. It isn't about just achieving like that one thing, is it? No. I mean, I think... I think when you make your goals really achievement-based, it becomes about other people's perceptions of you, and you can mm-hmm. never control that. 100%. You can never control that. And some people will never give that to you because that's how they wield their power over you, you know? And, and that's a lesson that I've had, uh, you know, chasing my dreams and, and trying to become a filmmaker. And it wasn't until I really started looking inside and becoming confident in my own voice that I felt like I could really reach for the goals and, yeah. and get closer to those goals. And I, and I noticed a huge difference when that happened. And what you're saying is such a universal message, but I was wondering in watching this movie, was there also something culturally specific about this? Because, I mean, I don't know if you were raised by tiger parents like I was, but there were definitely times I was told by my parents, if you just get into these schools, get these awards, you will have a better life. Just do these key things. Did you get that kind of pressure from your parents? I didn't get a lot of like, we want you to go to an Ivy League, we want you to like get a great job, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, I think my parents were very open-minded and observant of me. And they could tell when I was motivated and when I wasn't motivated. And, you know, I give a lot of credit, especially to my father. He told me this recently, actually. He told me that he wanted to make sure that he didn't treat me the way that his father treated him. And I think that made him more open to the things that I was curious about. Because you could tell when I was really into something, I was really, really into it. And um, a lot of Asian Americans struggle to convince their parents to allow them to go into like a creative artistic field. Mm-hmm. And I was really, really nervous when I told him. That you wanted to be a filmmaker. That I wanted to be a filmmaker. Because I was at NYU, I was about to graduate, you know, uh, and uh, he was really supportive. So You're so lucky. Yeah, shout out to my dad. No, That's beautiful. For sure. Well, I was so moved and somewhat triggered when watching Chang's fraught relationship with his mom, all the expectations that he felt from her, but also all the hope and desire to protect that she felt towards him. And without giving anything away, where did you want to see their relationship land by the end of the movie? That relationship, uh, I could talk all day about that relationship because that was very, very much inspired by, you know, how my relationship with my own mother has evolved over time. And um, one of the breakthroughs I 
I had while writing the script and thinking about my high school years was the fact that I realized that my mom was going through a lot of the same things that I was actually going through in high school. So my mom was studying in community college. Everyone would be younger than her. Her English wouldn't be that great. She was. She definitely had trouble fitting in. And that was kind of like my experience in high school. Yeah. And we would have all these frustrations and we'd come home and then totally not see that in each other. As a younger person, I was like, I wish my mom could see and understand me. But as a more mature adult, I try and see and understand my mom. And I think that's what happens towards the end of the film, is that Chang's mom takes a step towards understanding her son. And as a result, her son takes a step towards understanding her. It has to be a two-way street for that. Well, as much as your movie is such a feel-good movie, I I want to thank you. I cried a lot because it hit home so deeply for me. and That means so much to me. I, I loved it. Jing Xiao wrote and directed the new movie Chang Can Dunk. It was really awesome to talk to you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. This was absolutely wonderful. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered, New Hampshire Girl Scout goes rogue. Bruins are on the road out in Winnipeg tonight to face the Jets. 8 o'clock start time. It's a day off for the Celtics and for the Red Sox down in spring training. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, you can now do the same thing while listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBR app. You can download it in the App Store today. Overcast skies today and overnight tonight as well, down about 35 degrees. Then for tomorrow, should be mild again, possibly in the low 50s, but lots of clouds again as well. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters. Professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. If Beale Street could talk, it would have plenty of stories to share, including one about a storied high school band. Sometimes I'm up there and I'm like, I can't believe we're doing this. This is amazing, you know. Memphis, Tennessee is home to the oldest high school band in the country. We'll take you there tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Tensions are rising between the U.S. and Russia over this week's downing of a U.S. surveillance drone over international waters near Ukraine. The Kremlin claims Washington is directly involved in the fighting in Ukraine and warned that Moscow would recover the drone's wreckage from the Black Sea, something the U.S. does not want to see happen. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby is pushing back on the Kremlin's claims. The Pentagon released video today showing a Russian fighter jet clipping the drone, forcing the U.S. to crash land the aircraft into the sea. To lay bare and to make clear to the rest of the world uh, uh, the, the manner in which uh, the Russians um, have been just flat out lying, flat out lying uh, about their account. Um, so uh, it was in that vein that we, uh, that, that, uh, that we, very much in keeping with past practice to, to, to lay out that, that, uh, that imagery. 
Kirby says the U.S. will continue its surveillance in the region. That's despite Russia's provocations. A group of Wall Street banks is riding to the rescue of First Republic Bank, which has been battered by worries. The mid-sized bank might be the next to fail after Silicon Valley and Signature Bank collapsed last week. The private rescue package for San Francisco-based First Republic involves nearly a dozen banks making uninsured deposits for a total of about $30 billion. This comes a day after the giant credit Suisse Bank had to borrow up to $54 billion from Switzerland's central bank to stay afloat. The reprieve for First Republic, combined with yesterday's stabilizing news from Europe, have Wall Street breathing a sigh of relief. Stocks send it higher across the board. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The International Association of Firefighters is suing a Quincy-based group that sets national standards for protective firefighting gear. The union says the gear contains toxic PFAS chemicals. PFAS have been linked to numerous health concerns, including cancer. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel has more. The union says firefighting gear has to contain PFAS in order for it to be considered up to code by the National Fire Protection Association, or NFPA. The union claims that's the result of ongoing collusion between the NFPA and members of the manufacturing industry. Union President Edward Kelly demanded changes outside of Norfolk County Superior Court in Dedham. We want to know why they won't change the standard. We want clean bunker gear that's not going to kill us. Kelly says last year, nearly 75% of firefighters died of job-related cancer. The NFPA says it has not yet been served with a complaint and cannot comment on the lawsuit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. The state is expanding access to programs that let high school students take college courses and earn credits for free. Today, the Healy administration announced it's launching nine so-called early college partnerships that brings to nearly 60 the number of high schools that take part. Most are in cities that reach students who've been historically underrepresented in higher education. The state says nearly 7,800 Massachusetts schools will be enrolled in early college programs by the next school year. City of Boston is expanding its summer jobs program. Mayor Wu says 7,000 jobs will be available this summer for 14 to 18-year-olds. The city is putting more than $18 million toward the program. The administration says that's the largest investment in young people's jobs in the city's history. The teenagers can be connected to work with city agencies, nonprofits, and with community groups. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. It was nice to see the sun back today, but it's taking the day off tomorrow. First tonight, overcast, about 35 for low. Tomorrow should be about as mild as today was in the low 50s. Should be gray through the day tomorrow. And then Saturday, an overcast start. Then some sunshine burns through, up around 50. Sunday should turn colder, but sunnier. Mainly sunny skies, topping out at 38 degrees. Some winds whipping up as well on Sunday. 49 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. California is finally seeing a break from the rain. That is giving people time to take stock of the damage in flooded areas. Areas including the town of Pajaro in the state's central coast. A levee broke there last weekend and forced thousands of residents, many of them farm workers, to evacuate. Farida Jabvalo Romero from member station KQED went there yesterday. And Farida, what did you see? The first thing is that the water has receded a lot in the main parts of town. And so I was able to drive through Main Street, which Mm -hmm. was impossible just a couple of days ago when everything was underwater. Uh, And you could really tell the watermark about two to three feet up on building walls. You could tell the damage is going to be really extensive. I saw a beauty salon, for example, that was missing part of its front wall. There were cars still partly submerged in parking lots and Obviously, everything is closed right now and nobody's allowed to move back in yet. Right. Well, I was going to ask, you've been telling me what it looks like. What about what people are saying, the people who live there? How are they doing? Yeah, well, this is a really low-income community, mostly Latino. Many people in the town of Pajaro are farm workers in fields nearby and in the region. Many are undocumented. They don't have an economic safety net. They're not eligible for unemployment insurance, and they wouldn't qualify for FEMA funds either. Um, Since they evacuated last week, uh, they've been living in shelters set up by the county or with relatives nearby. Uh, We've even heard of people sleeping in cars with their kids. And, you know, these are people who had really little before the flooding. Uh, They expected to start working this month harvesting strawberries, which is the the top crop in Monterey County. But some fields are now lakes. They just look like lakes. So they don't know when they'll be able to work again. I spoke with Juana Juarez. She's a single mom of three. Me siento muy triste estando fuera de mi casa sabiendo que... um, So she's saying that she was left with nothing. She's worried about feeding her kids and how she'll pay for rent with no work. Tell me more, Farida, about what kind of help is coming in. Well, there are two kinds of responses, right? One's by officials uh, in the county trying to deal with the emergency itself. They've patched up the levee that broke, set up shelters and other types of aid for residents. But I also saw community members, other farm workers that are stepping up to help too. They've been raising donations. They've been dropping bags of clothes because a lot of people fled with just what they were wearing. Uh, They're cooking meals and buying pizzas and cookies, you know, even though they're in the same situation of not knowing when they'll get to work. Yeah, that feeling of not knowing, not knowing so many things. Is there any sense of the timeline just on when some of these displaced people will be able to go home? Well, we're hearing it could be several weeks or even longer. Uh, The Monterey County Sheriff says there's a bunch of steps the county needs to take before they let people in safely back into their homes, uh, like making sure that the infrastructure is safe, uh, buildings, drinking water, checking for environmental hazards. Governor Gavin Newsom toured the damage yesterday. He committed to helping these communities in their recovery, but the damage is going to be really expensive, and they're still assessing the extent 
extent of it. Um, agriculture is huge here, a $4 billion industry, and you know the losses are expected to be huge. That is Farida Jabvalo-Romero from our member station KQED. Farida, thank you. Thank you. Just as public radio relies on pledge drives to support its programming, the Girl Scouts rely on cookie sales to fund their work. This cookie season, one Girl Scout in New Hampshire got upset with an ingredient in the cookie recipe and decided to do something about it. NHPR's Todd Bookman has the story of Sophia and why she's gone rogue. Sophia Hammond, age 11, has been a Girl Scout for more than half of her life. I started when I was five, so about six years, I guess. Six years of camping trips and community service and planting trees. Girl Scouts are a big part of her identity. Actually, everybody in Girl Scouts are like my best friends. Like we hang out at school and after school and all that. Sophia hopes one day to earn the Girl Scout equivalent of the Eagle Scout. It's called the Gold Award, which is what makes the next bite in this cookie story so surprising. Sophia has become a vocal critic of Girl Scout cookies, specifically one of the ingredients, palm oil. So palm oil causes 2% of major deforestation and climate change. Because of palm oil, 1,000 to 5,000 orangutans are killed every year. There also have been ties to child labor, human trafficking, and slavery in the harvesting of palm fruit. Where are you getting these facts from? I've been researching for a while, so I've been getting, getting them off the internet and in books and things like that. The exact impact of palm oil harvesting isn't exactly clear, and the crop does have its upsides compared to some others. But Sophia is far from the first to go anti-cookie. Girls and troops across the country in recent years have all raised concerns about palm oil. They've made YouTube videos and gone on morning talk shows. Who say those dosy doughs, the tag-alongs, the thin mints are actually bad for the environment. Yes, and I had a So one of our main things in Girl Scouts is it's in our pledge trying to make the world a better place. And I don't think that the ingredient in Girl Scout cookies is doing that. So I don't support it, and I want to try to do something else. Do something else. In this case bake her own cookies. Sophia went door-to-door in Plymouth, New Hampshire, offering her neighbors a chance to buy traditional Girl Scout cookies or cookies she would make using her grandma's recipes and ones found online. Then it worked. She wound up selling 138 boxes of real Girl Scout cookies and got orders for 44 dozen cookies that would be baked by an actual Girl Scout. But she never exactly asked permission to do this. If they do kick me out for me doing this and for me being an entrepreneur, even though they've taught me how to do it, I wouldn't be that upset. I assume you don't want to be sued. Yeah, I definitely don't want to be sued. No, I would never sue Sophia. This is Trisha Meller, the head of the Girl Scouts of the Green and White Mountains, the council that oversees all the troops in Vermont and New Hampshire. We're proud of Sophia for being passionate about an issue that she strongly believes in. That's what Girl Scouting is all about. What it's not about, according to the rules, though, is selling things other than official Girl Scout cookies during cookie season. But Meller said the Scouts have made changes about palm oil. Their corporate bakers pledge to use sustainably sourced palm, though critics say unsustainable oil still likely finds its way into the supply chain. It's a hard ingredient to just not use. It tastes good and keeps the cookies crispy. Sophia and her dad are now finalizing their own recipes with no palm oil. Teaspoon? Yeah. Baking soda? Half teaspoon? Clove. Half teaspoon. She collected all the orders back in January. Now it's crunch time, time to get baking. Nine minutes in the oven, then a taste test on the oatmeal and peanut butter cookies. Very good. (laughs) Two dozen down, 
42 dozen more to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of work. It's going to take a while, but it's fun. Minus the cost of ingredients, Sophia is going to profit about $100 from her own cookies. She's donating that money back to her local troop. For NPR News, I'm Todd Bookman. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. China's society is aging quickly at straining public welfare and healthcare systems. Now, that tension came to the fore last month when hundreds of elderly retirees in two Chinese cities protested a reduction in state healthcare benefits. As NPR's Emily Fang reports, some of China's younger citizens are growing wary of shaky public funds and they're embracing private policies instead. Amy Chen, an investor who works at a seed fund in China, was just 22 when she bought her first commercial pension plan. I think whether the public pension funds will actually be able to issue payments by the time I retire is actually a real problem. This is a policy on top of a mandatory public pension fund. She's also bought a life insurance financial product to hedge her bets. Chen checks her commercial pension account. <laughs> And finds her pension has fallen 2.5% in value last year. Chen's outlook is totally different from the previous generation, including that of her own parents. My parents rely on their public pensions to fund their retirement. Previous generations relied entirely on state pensions, largely from state firms. But China's demographic trends mean the country is aging fast and fewer children are being born. That strained public pension systems because fewer young workers are paying in and payouts are rising. When the demographics shift in an unfavorable direction, a system that worked well suddenly becomes completely unsustainable. This is Gabriel Wildow, who covers China for the consulting firm Teneo. I think China's following a pattern that, that we see in many other countries where you have uh, politically difficult reforms that are ultimately unavoidable because the money just isn't there to keep benefits at current levels. So China is encouraging people to open their private pension accounts and not to totally rely on public funds. Commercial pensions are still so new in China that there's no concrete estimate of total assets under management in these funds. But they're fast growing, according to 2019 research from consulting firm McKinsey. Licensed professionals are racing to meet the growing demand. One seller told NPR he had a quota to sell 100 private plans this quarter. I accomplished that task, mostly through selling the policies to my friends. He didn't give his name because he's not authorized to speak to the media by his employer, which is a provincial bank. He said he is also doubtful of public pensions. If they keep raising the retirement age to 80, for example, and if I do not even live that long, then my money will be locked in a fund. Shan Huang, a political science professor at Rutgers University, says the state is carefully monitoring the growth of private plans. Private policies could compensate for the state pension shortfall and allow coverage to extend to hard-to-reach rural areas. But on the other hand, it also kind of like established themselves as an independent authority that have resources, that have authority. Uh, that is something the an authoritarian government cannot tolerate. And that may pose a different kind of risk for the young Chinese who are trying out this experiment with private pensions. 
Emily Fang, NPR News, Taiwan. Now some brief news about dogs. The American Kennel Club is out with its annual list of the most popular breeds. And for the first time in 31 years, the top dog is no longer the Labrador Retriever. It's the French Bulldog, a somewhat controversial breed. They can be expensive and have trouble swimming and breathing. But the American Kennel Club says Frenchies are in demand thanks to their small size and, quote, generally quiet behavior. Woof. I'll stick with my pointers, thanks. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Keep calm, says U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Bank depositors should feel confident, she says, that their money is safe. Her latest remarks coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered. Boston Bruins are on the road out in Winnipeg to do business with the Jets. 8 o'clock start time. Celtics have the night off. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. If you get tickets to any of the biggest concerts of the summer in Foxborough, you'll be able to take the commuter rail to get there. MBTA announced today it'll run special trains from Boston and Providence to Gillette Stadium for several shows there. The venue is going to be hosting Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Billy Joel, among others. Tickets will be available two weeks before each concert. The round trip will cost $20. In the forecast, mostly cloudy skies this evening, tonight and tomorrow. Tonight's lows should be about 35. Tomorrow's highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. It is 449. WBUR supporters include Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. GoodNewsGarage.org. If Beale Street could talk, it would have plenty of stories to share, including one about a storied high school band. Sometimes I'm up there and I'm like, I can't believe we're doing this. This is amazing, you know. Memphis, Tennessee is home to the oldest high school band in the country. We'll take you there tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In the 1950s, a young publishing professional named Rona Jaffe heard about a book being made into a movie. It was written by a man. And to Jaffe, it missed the mark. Rona read it and was like, I could do better than this. This doesn't understand my experience at all or the woman's experience. And she writes it in a few months. It just pours out of her. That's Rachel Symes, staff writer at The New Yorker, talking about Jaffe's inspiration for writing the best of everything. Syme is a longtime fan of that novel and was thrilled to write the new introduction to its 65th anniversary edition. For years, it's been the book she presses into people's hands when they plan to move to New York City. It was often dismissed, considered frivolous, but Syme says it's in the DNA of lots of pop culture today. Here she is setting up the book. It is about a group of working girls who all work in the typing pool at a publishing house called Fabian Publications. It follows a group of women who are all semi-fresh out of college, young, in their 20s. Think Peggy Olson from Mad Men. I'm sorry to wake you, but Mr. Campbell is outside. Who are you? I'm Peggy Olson, the new girl. Who come into this publishing house with varying ambitions, some to get ahead in business, some to 
find a man, all of them swirling around the city trying to find their place in Manhattan. And they work for various bosses. There's a female boss of the company who is somewhat of a tyrant. And then there's obviously several men because in the 1950s, the world was completely run by men. And they are all various degrees of lecherous and domineering and creepy. <laughs> This book has probably the best first paragraph of any novel about New York City. You see them every morning at a quarter to nine, rushing out of the maw of the subway tunnel, filing out of Grand Central Station, crossing Lexington and Park and Madison and Fifth Avenues, the hundreds and hundreds of girls. Some of them look eager and some look resentful and some of them look as if they haven't left their beds yet. Some of them have been up since 6.30 in the morning, the ones who commute from Brooklyn and Yonkers and New Jersey and Staten Island and Connecticut. They carry the morning newspapers and overstuffed handbags. Some of them are wearing pink or chartreuse fuzzy overcoats and five-year-old ankle strap shoes and have their hair up in pin curls underneath kerchiefs. Some of them are wearing chic black suits, maybe last year's, but who can tell, and kid gloves and are carrying their lunches in violet-sprigged Bonwit Teller paper bags. None of them has enough money. She has this beautiful thing where she says hundreds and hundreds of girls. What a great inspiration for even the series Girls. Like, I think that has a very strong resonance. So I calculated and I can last in New York for three and a half more days, maybe seven if I don't eat lunch. And then she says some of them, some of them, some of them. So there's this repetitive sort of listing aspect, almost if you're opening a magazine or a newspaper story, it's very rep reportorial. It's very sort of observational. And the last line, none of them has enough money. Hits you like a ton of bricks. This book, when it came out, was something of a sensation, but it was also quite controversial because Jaffe has her women having sex, running around, having affairs, having an abortion. There are things that happen in this book that to me feel edgy, even for today. What it was trying to say was that young women coming up through the corporate world were encountering so much pushback. They were not able to get ahead without sleeping with their superiors or just going out for these very long scotch drenched lunches where they had to humor these men and make them feel like they were masters of the universe. Or if you're a woman who's gotten ahead, you've done it by absolutely stepping on other women and being dramatically cruel, as is the character of the female boss in this story, who in the movie version was played by Joan Crawford. So that tells you everything about the casting of how they saw that character. Oh, Carolyn, you can order me some coffee, black, no sugar. Yes, Miss Farrell, now how do I... Dial the operator, ask for the coffee shop. No, 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 it's your desk outside. You can do that later, open the mail first. It's in the box under your nose, dear. Carolyn, I haven't finished my instructions yet. It showed that women were also very free and had dreams of being something else than a wife in the suburbs. A lot of them just wanted to live in the city. And a lot of these women have their own place or are striving to have their own place, want to live independently, want to work independently. And it was pretty bold to write that vision in 1958, so much so that immediately Rona got pushback. In 1958, Rona was invited to go on Canadian television, basically the PBS of Canada, to talk about the book. And these two men kind of sit on either side of her and talk over her as if she's not there and judge her and ask her if, in her opinion, we need to protect the working girl. Does the career girl need protection? 
I think so, and I think that unfortunately it has to come from herself. And one of the men asks her, Rona, Miss Jaffe, is it hip to be bad these days? They think it's square to be good or dull to be good. Well, they're under constant stress. As if all these girls are bad girls just because they're unwed and want to have jobs. The men that take you out, aren't they a bit frightened of you? No, aren't you faced with a problem now? You're a career, a super career girl. What do you think, Mr. Davies? Would you be afraid at the age of 26 to take out Miss Jaffe? I most certainly would not. I'd probably end up as Mr. Jaffe. At one point, one man turns to the other and says, She's awfully hard on men in that book, don't you think? I think that she's very hard on men. She deals with the lives of five girls in their early relations with men. Uh, four of them have unpleasant experiences. And I must say, I think that's a little rough, you know. I, I'm sure I could write a book in which five men got a very rough time from horrible girls. You've got to stand up for your own sex in these matters. It is exactly how people took this book, which is that she was doing something bad or forbidden by just simply talking about women's lives as they experience them. Personal essays, revealing texts, books about women's interiority. I mean, these at this point are now commonplace parts of our culture. I mean, Sex in the City came along. Like, what could be more shocking? I will wear whatever and blow whomever I want as long as I can breathe and kneel. But I think, in general, this book had a real reputation at the time for being, if not trash, then sort of something disposable. And I think part of that had to do with just the fact that it was a really commercial, fun novel, obviously. And part of that had to do with the fact that men tried to dispose of it because of the way that they were portrayed. So there were sort of two aspects of culture working to minimize this book's importance. Yes, it has political statements about capitalism and work and marriage and bad men, but it's also so fun to read. It is like a confection. It is like a martini with a side of french fries. It is so delicious. She is so obsessed with details and fashion and food and all of these wonderful settings that are full of rich detail. So it is, to me, a classic and will always be a classic even though many people over the years have tried to dismiss it as trash. That is New Yorker writer Rachel Syme on Rona Jaffe's classic, The Best of Everything. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at RemotePC.com. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast tonight. Overcast about 35 for low. Tomorrow should be about as mild as today has been in the low 50s. Gray through the day tomorrow, though. Then for Saturday, an overcast start before some sunshine burns through up around 50 degrees. Sunday should turn colder but sunnier. 
Mainly sunny skies topping out at 38. Some winds whipping up on Sunday. Sunset tonight is 6.52. Sunrise tomorrow is 6.53. It's 4.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com slash NSBE. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Treasury Secretary pr- pronounces the banking system sound and says Americans can be confident their deposits are safe. Coming up, Janet Yellen is pressed during a Senate Finance Committee meeting on Capitol Hill. Today is Thursday, March 16th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Cherokee Nation is investing $100 million in treatment to combat the opioid fentanyl crisis. The money was part of a settlement paid out by Big Pharma. I believe that the Cherokee Nation is is doing right by this money. More on the story coming up. Former Defense Secretary Robert Gates on his center's new report that reimagines public diplomacy and Boston makes a new push to be a greener city. It's 501. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Eleven big banks are riding to the rescue, depositing a combined $30 billion into First Republic Bank to keep the California-based lender afloat. Sinpure's David Gurr reports it's been under pressure since regulators shut down Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The largest depositors are Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo. They're each depositing $5 billion at First Republic Bank, and they'll be joined by seven other lenders, including Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. In a joint statement, the banks say this is a reflection of their confidence in the U.S. banking system. California-based First Republic has seen an exodus of deposits, and the company was downgraded by two ratings agencies Wednesday, even after it had lined up tens of billions of dollars in emergency financing over the weekend. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was on Capitol Hill today. Yellen telling members of the Senate Finance Committee the nation's banking system remains sound. Yellen said the government took forceful actions to strengthen public confidence. Some have called the bank rescue went went far above protecting deposits of up to $250,000 of bailout. Administration officials countered, though, the money comes from fees and that no taxpayer money is going to prop up the banks. Senate Democrats are increasing pressure on pharmaceutical companies to lower the cost of insulin. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports capping the price of the diabetes medicine has been a major part of President Biden's push to lower health care costs. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling on Sanofi, the third largest maker of insulin, to lower its prices. All of us know somebody with diabetes. Put yourselves in their shoes and imagine the sheer agony of struggling to afford this basic drug just so you can live a decent and healthy life, so you don't have to worry about going blind or maybe having a leg amputated. No Americans should have to go through that. President Biden called on drug makers to lower the cost of insulin during his State of the Union address last month. So far, pharmaceutical giants Eli Lilly and Norvo Nordisk have agreed to slash the price of the medication by up to 75 percent. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The coronavirus pandemic took the biggest toll on black, Latino, and Native American children and families. That's according to a new report. NPR's Rob Stein has more. Children in racial and ethnic minority groups who lost a parent or another loved one during the pandemic probably suffered the most socially, emotionally, physically, educationally, and economically, according to the report. Those kids account for 65% of those who lost a mother, father, or other primary caregiver due to COVID-19. The report recommends strengthening crucial safety net programs such as Medicaid and paid family and sick leave to help these kids and their families. Rob Stein, NPR News. That was up 371 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Mayor Michelle Wu is taking steps to reduce the use of fossil fuels in buildings in Boston. Today, she proposed that Boston adopt the state's voluntary building codes. The codes require greener standards for new buildings and major renovations. WBUR's Paula Mar has more. Buildings are responsible for three-quarters of greenhouse gas emissions in Boston. Mayor Wu says the new energy code aims to reduce them significantly. This building code is simpler and sets standards for both new construction and major renovations to existing buildings. It will increase energy efficiency, reduce emissions, and advance our overall carbon neutrality goals. Wu also announced new funds to make existing affordable housing greener. An apartment complex in Austin will be the first to undergo renovations. Its heating and cooling will be made fully electric. The building will also get new insulation and ventilation systems, among other changes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. The plan still needs to approve by, be approved by the Boston City Council. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is condemning President Biden's approval of a new project to drill for oil in Alaska. The Massachusetts Democrat says the new drilling will slow the progress that's being made to address climate change. In the amount of time it would take big oil to finally fulfill their long broken promise of making us energy independent, we could replace that demand for dirty oil with a demand for clean energy. Markey tells All Things Considered that the private marketplace is developing wind, solar, electric vehicles and battery storage technologies to make the oil exploration unnecessary. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton is defending the government's decision to step in to help customers of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Both financial institutions failed in the past week. WBUR's Bart Tauchi reports. The federal government has taken action to ensure depositors' funds. But some critics worry that step is another bank bailout like that of 2008. Moulton says this time is different. The congressman says it was the right decision to insure depositors. He says the federal government has a different level of responsibility to bank owners. I don't think we should bail out the owners of the banks. I don't think we should bail out the stockholders uh, who frankly should lose their shirts over this. Moulton has introduced legislation to reinstate bank regulations that were rolled back in 2018 by a Republican-controlled Congress. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Bart Tachi. Clouds have rolled in, should last through the night tonight. Temperatures about 35 overnight. Tomorrow should be another mild day, possibly reaching the low 50s, but lots of clouds around tomorrow. Finally, we could see the sunshine again on Saturday, comfortable right about 50. And then for Sunday, lots of sunshine, but windy and colder down around 38. It's 5.07.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America, usps.com slash moving forward. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen offered reassurance today that the U.S. banking system is sound despite two recent bank failures. Yellen's comments come after a nervous week for banks and their customers. This afternoon, nearly a dozen big banks teamed up to pump money into a troubled smaller bank. Stocks rallied in the U.S. and in Europe, but questions remain about the actions the government took to shore up the banking system and how to prevent similar meltdowns in future. NPR Scott Horsley is here to take on some of those questions. Hey, Scott. Hi, Mary Louise. All right. So Janet Yellen was appearing before a Senate committee today. She got all kinds of questions about these bank failures. What did she say? She says the administration is committed to protecting bank customers uh, after Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank in New York collapsed. Both the FDIC and the Federal Reserve took extraordinary steps to make sure the people and businesses who had money in those banks would not suffer losses and to limit the kind of financial ripple effects that might have put other banks at risk. I can reassure the members of the committee that our banking system is sound and that Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. The private sector also pitched in today. Eleven big banks said they would deposit $30 billion into First Republic Bank. That's a San Francisco-based bank that's been suffering some of the same pressures that brought down Silicon Valley Bank last week. Great. And what did Yellen say about that? There's been so much finger-pointing. Did we get any closer to figuring out who or what is to blame? Well, there's a lot of blame to go around, uh, starting, of course, with the bank's managers who made some rookie mistakes, uh, extending to federal supervisors who apparently failed to catch and correct those mistakes, and maybe members of Congress who watered down some of the measures designed to prevent this kind of problem after the great financial crisis. Ultimately, though, Yellen says Silicon Valley was brought down by a classic bank run. That's when too many depositors want to get their money out all at once. And Virginia Senator Mark Warner noted this bank run happened with extraordinary speed. Many of Silicon Valley Bank's depositors are part of that tightly knit tech industry in the Bay Area. And the minute news of Silicon Valley Bank's trouble started to light up on their cell phones, they switched to their banking apps and tried pulling out tens of billions of dollars. We've seen now the very first social media, internet-based bank run. I'm not sure what regulatory system anywhere no matter how much capital, no matter how many stress tests, that would have protected any institution from a $42 billion bank run in a single day. Now, Yellen says Silicon Valley Bank was particularly vulnerable to that kind of run because so much of its deposits were uninsured. The whole purpose of deposit insurance is to discourage bank runs by letting customers know their money's safe. But the FDIC typically covers only $250,000 per account, and most of the money on deposit at Silicon Valley Bank was not covered. Right, although in this case the government made made an exception, said it would guarantee all the deposits, including those way over a quarter of a million dollars. And I guess I wonder, do we understand yet what kind of precedent that will set? Like if another bank fails, is the government going to jump in and cover big deposits? Yeah, that was one of the big questions today. Republican Senator James Langford asked, you know, if a small bank in Oklahoma goes down, will its big customers get the same kind of protection? Yellen said not necessarily, and that worries Langford. We have seen the mergers of banks over the past decade 
I'm concerned you're about to accelerate that by encouraging anyone who has a large deposit in a community bank to say, we're not going to make you whole, but if you go to one of our preferred banks, we will make you whole. And that's the kind of perverse incentive policymakers will be wrestling with in the weeks to come. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. And Pierre Scott Horsley. There is hope in one community fighting the opioid fentanyl crisis. The Cherokee Nation has been devastated by addiction and overdose deaths. A lot of children, like nine-year-old Mazzy Walker, lost their parents to drugs. I never got to meet them. Now, the Cherokee Nation is spending $100 million to help its people move past addiction. It's money the tribe won in settlements from big drug companies and pharmacy chains accused of fueling the opioid crisis. Tribal leaders say the funds will save lives and save families. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. When Brenda Barnett was pregnant with her son, Ryan, she says the Cherokee reservation around Tahlequah, Oklahoma, was flooded with pain pills. Her Cherokee family had already been scarred by her brother's long addiction to opioids. At that time, I I was thinking, I can't go through what my mom went through. I can't do it. I was terrified. That was one of the biggest fears I had in raising a child. And it happened. It happened. Her son Ryan was 15 when he hurt his hand in a car door. A doctor prescribed OxyContin. In a way, they're lucky. Ryan survived, but he says that first opioid prescription, that first high, derailed his life. I'd never experienced this before. We're at Sonic getting a cheeseburger on the way home. I was like, this is great. You know, I will do whatever I got to do to feel this way forever. Sitting with his mom at their kitchen table, Ryan says he hates talking about what followed. He feels a lot of shame. Ten years lost to pain pills, heroin, and fentanyl. You know, I did take a big chunk of my life and threw it in the trash. Brenda and Ryan say a lot of Cherokee, their friends and neighbors, didn't survive. You know, you lose your your best friends in this whole thing. If they're alive, they're in prison for the most part. Through the opioid epidemic that began in the late 90s, a lot of the public's awareness and most of the public health response focused on rural white communities. But new studies and prescription drug distribution data released as part of opioid lawsuits show Native American towns like Tahlequah were also swamped with pain pills. Principal Chief Chuck Koskin heads the Cherokee Nation. I'm completely convinced that the industry uh, bears responsibility because of the number of pills that were dumped onto the reservation. And that's not an accident. That's because there was profit to be gained. Thousands of governments around the U.S., including tribal governments, sued. They took on the biggest corporations in America that made and sold opioid medications. In the end, most of those companies, including Johnson & Johnson and Walmart, agreed to national settlements, cash payouts worth more than $50 billion. Chief Hoskins says his tribe's share of that money, roughly $100 million, is already revolutionizing addiction care for the Cherokee. The suffering would have continued. Our inability to directly provide care would have been very limited. uh, And now that's completely changed. Three, two, one. The next big project is a state-of-the-art inpatient recovery center planned for Tahlequah, capital of the Cherokee Nation. The ceremony unveiling the project is packed with tribal leaders and Cherokee families who've lost loved ones or struggled with addiction. That's where I met Jennifer Pena Lassiter, a Cherokee addicted to pain pills and heroin for 11 years. The opioid industry harmed millions of people, a million, I mean, you know, Thousands of Cherokees uh, have been devastated by it all. 
Penny Lassiter lost custody of her children and spent time in prison before rebuilding her life with help from the tribe. She says these new facilities and programs will help more people heal faster. I believe that the Cherokee Nation is, is doing right by this money that they got from the settle, uh, settlement. There's already a new harm reduction clinic here. The tribal hospital now offers buprenorphine, a medication that helps people with opioid addiction avoid relapses. Roughly 400 Cherokee are getting that treatment. Over the next five years, the tribe plans to roll out $75 million in new treatment facilities, a huge change for a reservation with a population of around 150,000 Cherokee. So this is a hopeful moment, but also a perilous one. Penya Lassiter tells me pain pills and heroin have given way to fentanyl on the reservation. It's terrible. It's everywhere. There are people dying here all the time. If I go into a gas station at any time, somebody could be, you know, dead in the bathroom. Fentanyl is now a leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 40. Research funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found the biggest spike in fatal overdoses among Native Americans. A sharp increase in the last two years and even sharper in the last year. Sam Bradshaw is Cherokee and heads the tribe's addiction prevention program. A lot of the kids are experimenting with drugs that they don't know what's in them, and so fentanyl's mixed up in pills they're taking. Part of the settlement money will go to create more targeted, culturally appropriate messages to warn and guide young Cherokee. After so much death and loss here, there is one more reality that angers a lot of Cherokee. While America's big drug companies agreed to pay billions of dollars, none apologized or admitted wrongdoing. Principal Chief Chuck Hoskins says it's infuriating only a handful of drug company executives were prosecuted. You know, justice is a relative term, but the way that I look at it in this moment is that we have an opportunity to save lives going forward. Getting these dollars in now uh, is important, so I feel good about the measure of justice that we have. Back in the Barnett's kitchen, Brenda says she thinks the tribe is doing its best to move quickly. They are taking care of our people. After decades of suffering, she believes the Cherokee Nation could actually become a model for how small towns respond to the opioid fentanyl crisis. You know what? We're poised to do the better, a better job than anything out there. To see them coming in and saying, these are our people. I, I, they're, not, they're not throwaway because they have this disease. With financial help and health care from the tribe, her son Ryan has been in recovery, drug-free, for five years. At age 31, he's back in college. As we sit at the kitchen table, Brenda puts a hand on his arm. Be proud. When you hear your mom talk like that, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel good. It makes It's good to know that she's proud. She trusts me. It's good to know that now because there was, you know, over a decade where, yeah, right. Public health experts say it will be years before there's data showing whether this is working, whether opioid addiction and overdose deaths among the Cherokee are finally coming down. For now, what people have here is hope that this money and their efforts will finally start the healing. Brian Mann, NPR News, Tahlequah, Oklahoma. This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Break out the bracket cards. The NCAA's basketball tournament begins today, tipping off March Madness. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Stocks ended the day on the upside. The Dow grew by one and two-thirds percent, two-tenths percent, that is. S&P picked up even more territory. It rose one and three-quarters percent. The Nasdaq grew by nearly two and a half percent. Some of the speed restrictions on the MBTA lines are being lifted nearly a week after they were put in place. The MBTA says those restrictions were lifted today for the entire Mattapan trolley line, although sections of that line may still be slower than normal because of the slowdowns on orders on parts of the line. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Look for overcast skies overnight tonight, just about 35 degrees for a low. Tomorrow should be about as mild as today has been in the low 50s. Gray through the day tomorrow, and then for Saturday, an overcast start. Lots of sunshine by the afternoon, though. Highs up about 50. Sunday should turn colder but sunnier. Mainly sunny skies topping out at 38. Should have some winds whipping up on Sunday. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It is one thing here in hyper-political Washington to talk the talk about bipartisanship. It's another thing to walk the walk. Well, our next guest is not a politician, but Robert Gates did pull off that rarest of feats, serving in the cabinet of a Republican president. He was defense secretary to George W. Bush, and then staying put pivoting to serve uninterrupted in the same role under Barack Obama, a Democrat. Gates has since founded the Gates Global Policy Center. Its goal is finding nonpartisan solutions to security challenges. They have a new report out, and Secretary Gates joins me to share a little of what is in it and how it may apply to a real-life situation or two. Secretary Gates... Welcome back to All Things Considered. Good to speak with you again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. So the report is focused on concrete actions that the U.S. can take to to reimagine public diplomacy, to better compete in the 21st century. Concrete actions like what? Give me an example. First of all, I think the important thing to take into account is that if we are able to avoid a military confrontation with China, then this contest that we're in will be waged as much of the Cold War was with non-military instruments of power. Well, and may I ask you to pause for a second? I'm interested that you're putting China at the center of everything, of our national security challenges before I'd even asked you about China. Well, I think in the, in the arena of strategic uh, communications, the only real significant challenge to the United States uh, is from China. And that's because uh, in the early 2000s, well before uh, Xi Jinping came into power, 
uh, Hu Jintao allocated about $7 billion to creating a global strategic communications capability for China. And they now dominate that space, particularly in the global south. The Chinese are putting billions of dollars into this, and we have basically starved our capability in this area, both in terms of, of, of communications with the rest of the world, and especially in the public engagement area, which is about bringing people from other countries here to study, creating apprenticeship programs. The Chinese are doing all of these things, and we're basically at the starting gate. Who's the audience for all this great messaging that you would like the U.S. to be doing? The first, and the, by far the largest, is the Global South in particular, and all countries uh, that aspire to democracy or, or that uh, are willing to work with us and, and are willing to consider uh, partnering with the United States. But there's another audience as well, and that audience is the people of China and the people of Russia uh, and other authoritarian or totalitarian states. We need to be more aggressive in getting our message to them. And our message there is more about the behavior of their own government. Let me ask you, Secretary Gates, to apply some of this to Ukraine. It seems like one disadvantage that the U.S. is is laboring against here is that, as you acknowledge in your report, there's so much division, there's so much polarization. Since part of your messaging is there needs to be bipartisan support um, for the measures that you endorse, do you believe there is bipartisan support for being all in on Ukraine? I think there is. There are obviously a growing number of people, particularly on the left and on the right, who are uh, who have reservations and who are concerned about it and who are uh, opposed to it. But I think there was a I Washington think- Post headline this week talking about a Republican civil war on Ukraine, and and that subhead GOP leaders and voters are increasingly skeptical. Well, I think uh, I think that civil war uh, describes it in the respect that there are some very powerful Republicans in both houses of Congress that are very supportive of what uh, what we're trying to do in Ukraine. I think that it's possibly time limited. If a year from now we are still in uh, a situation like we're in right now, where there hasn't been a dramatic move on the part of either the Russians or the Ukrainians, mm-hmm. then I think that opposition uh, may grow. But right now, there is still very strong bipartisan support in the Congress for our support for Ukraine. This week saw the U.S. come the closest we have come yet to confrontation. Um, the Pentagon says Russia downed a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. How dangerous is this situation? Does this mark a shift as you see it? I think it's dangerous because it shows a level of aggressiveness on the part of the Russians that, um, frankly, I think is a manifestation of their frustration that they have been unable to do anything uh, to uh, oppose what the United States and NATO countries and other countries have done uh, to support Ukraine. And so I think if the reports are accurate that, that we, we know that doing this was approved at the very highest level in Russia, uh, that's a concern as well. I want to shift gears once again because It occurs to me that you and I are speaking on the eve of the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Um, I've traveled with you in Iraq back when you were SecDef and I was in the Pentagon press corps. I watched you interact with Iraqi generals and with U.S. troops. And I wonder, uh, 20 years on, are you proud of what the U.S. did in Iraq? I think that um, from today's vantage point, you have an Iraq that 
um, has a democratically elected government, however flawed. It's really the only democratically elected government uh, in the Arab world. That's such a great cost, though. Such a great cost. And all at a very high cost, and for both the Americans and for uh, and for the Iraqis. Let's apply that to where we started with a push for bipartisanship for nonpartisan politics, because there are questions over whether it was you know a backlash to the Iraq War that led the groundwork for broad mistrust of of the political establishment and questions about how active and engaged the U.S. should be on the world stage ever since. I think that where Americans get impatient is if we get into conflicts that seem to have no end. And so I think there is a cautionary tale in terms of our use of uh, our military engagement. But I think I think there's still very broad support for for our international leadership. And I think, you know, just as an example, uh, I like to say that Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have done something uh, no one else has been able to do, and that is bring Republicans and Democrats together on the Hill. You know, you get beneath the sound bites and, and social media and so on. I think, I think on a number of very significant national security issues, there really is broad uh, bipartisan support in both parties, whether it's for continuing strong investment in the military, uh, or how we're dealing with both Russia and China. Robert Gates, he served as Secretary of Defense in both the Obama and George W. Bush administrations. He is founder and chair of the Gates Global Policy Center. Secretary Gates, thank you. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Across the U.S., the demand for child care far outstrips available resources, especially in rural areas where there may be no option at all. That story is coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. Should be a good one up in Winnipeg tonight as the Bruins meet the Jets. Both teams are trying to stay near the top of their conferences. The Bruins still hold the best record in the NHL. It's all over for Dunkachino. Canton-based Duncan has pulled the iconic drink from its menu after more than two decades. A company spokesperson tells CNN that removing the coffee hot chocolate concoction will make room for more innovative products. A Duncan official does hint of a possible Dunkachino comeback in the future. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston. Jack, I think I found something. Three women were strangled over the last two weeks. You're on the lifestyle desk. You're not covering a homicide. I think the murders are connected. Actor Chris Cooper and writer and director Matt Ruskin join us to talk about their film, The Boston Strangler. That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
A group of Wall Street banks is riding to the rescue of First Republic Bank, which has been battered by worries the mid-sized financial institution might be the next to fail after Silicon Valley and Signature Bank collapsed last week. The situation is refocusing attention on the Trump administration's decision in 2018 to roll back tough bank regulations that were put in place after the 2008 financial crash. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. As the president said, Congress and regulators must strengthen those rules for larger banks so that this doesn't happen again. And so, again, there's a legislation that we are encouraged to see, and uh, and we'll you know continue to work with Congress on what else uh, what else can be done. Now, the private rescue package for San Francisco-based First Republic involves nearly a dozen banks making uninsured deposits for a total of about 30 billion dollars. In Tennessee, the state's lieutenant governor, Randy McNally, is being asked to resign from his post by a fellow Republican after his Instagram activity showed McNally likes to comment on risque photos of a young gay man. From member station WPLN, Blaze Ganey has the story. In response to calls for resignation, Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally says he serves at the pleasure of the members of the Senate. No members of his caucus have called for his resignation, in fact, out of the 132 state lawmakers, House Republican Todd Warner is the only one who signed on to the request for resignation. House Speaker Cameron Sexton is supporting McNally. He's apologized for it and to those people that he offended. Um, and I think the Senate and I think we're moving past it at this point. McNally deactivated his Instagram account Wednesday and earlier in the week, he issued a statement saying he was pausing his social media activity. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. We're now on the decision by 11 large banks to fund a $30 billion rescue package for First Republic Bank. First Republic is the sixth largest bank in Massachusetts. It has seen stock price fall sharply this week on concerns that it could fail. The bank has five branches in the state. They're in Boston, Cambridge, and Wellesley. First Republic held more than $17 billion in deposits in Massachusetts last year. Its stock rose nearly 10 percent in trading today. Spring should bring lower energy bills to national grid customers in Massachusetts. The utility said today it's proposing new rates that would start in May and run through October. WBUR's Irina Machavariani reports. If state regulators approve, national grid electricity bills are expected to go down by 39 percent. That would save a typical customer about $100 each month compared to what they are paying now. National Grid spokesman Bob Kevra hopes this brings relief after a winter of record high bills. He says the uptick was fueled by unpredictable natural gas prices. Natural gas prices have a significant impact on the cost of electricity particularly here in New England, where about 50 to 55 percent of our electricity comes from natural gas-powered plants. Prices for natural gas are affected by factors that include inflation and global conflict. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani. For the utility Eversource, summer electricity rates take effect in July. It'll be another few months before it sets those rates. A group of faith leaders in Massachusetts is calling on the state and local governments to do more to solve the affordable housing crisis. Members of the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization spoke at the State House today. Charlie Homer called on Governor Maura Healy to double the state's public housing operating budget to $184 million. We hope that she will speak with the legislature. Uh, and say, oops, I'm sorry, uh, 92 was not enough, and I'd be supportive of your increasing this. 
And we also hope that legislative leaders will address the real need. The group also wants the Healy administration to increase funding for affordable housing construction and first-time home ownership programs. And it's calling on communities served by the MBTA to comply with state law and allow more affordable housing units to be built near T stations. It's 535. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. Clouds have settled in and should spend the night tonight. Temperatures about 35 for a low tonight. Tomorrow should be another mild day, a lot like today, reaching the low 50s. More clouds, though. Should eventually see some sunshine on Saturday. Comfortable day, right about 50. Then for Sunday, lots of sunshine, but windy and cooler, down around 38 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with the confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama, available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Let the games begin. The NCAA's men's basketball tipped off today, launching the tournament. And tomorrow, the women take the court. Every year, millions of Americans fill out brackets trying various strategies to predict which college team will make it into the Final Four. Well, Nicole Auerbach is senior writer with The Athletic, and she's covering round one in Greensboro, North Carolina, but took a pause to give us a little tip sheet. Hey, Nicole. Hey, thanks for having me. Starting with the men of the teams right now in the tournament, which ones are you keeping a really close eye on in these early days? Well, I hate to go too chalky here, but you really do need to start with the ones and the two seeds. I mean, Alabama is the number one overall seed. They have been in the news for off the court reasons and on the court reasons over the last few weeks, and they're as hot as anybody in the country. I also really like Marquette. They're a two seed fresh off of Big East Championship and Conference Tournament Championship. Uh, I I think Kansas is an intriguing team trying to go back to back with Bill Self. The last region is the one I think could be the most interesting. You've got Houston trying to make a Final Four in their hometown, but also an Indiana team that I think has two pros and has potential to go the furthest of any Big Ten team this season. And the women's tournament kicks off tomorrow. Dawn Staley and South Carolina were heavy favorites last year. Which teams do you think threaten their back to back championships? Can I say no one? And I mean that in a joking way. It's just, this is going to be one of those tournaments where it is South Carolina versus the field. And you have really intriguing teams like Iowa, Stanford, Indiana, again, on the women's side. UConn is getting healthy at the right time. Virginia Tech has Liz Kitley. They've been really fun to watch. But it really does feel like the only team that can beat South Carolina is South Carolina. They're undefeated this year. They're trying to go back to back. And it just feels like this is Don Staley's world and we're living in it. Okay, taking a step back, both either gender, Americans love an underdog. If somebody's going to surprise us, who would you be unsurprised at being surprised by? Well, I'm going to pick a team that's at my site here in Greensboro, and it's Kennesaw State. They are delightful. They are fun. They are loose. And they won one game 
in the whole season three years ago, and now they're in the NCAA tournament. They've got Xavier in the first round here in a three seed versus a 14 seed matchup. And we've seen upsets from 14 seeds before. Listen, I just got to tell you, there's a vibe around this team. It just has all of the pieces of the type of team that we are going to see pull off an upset and then fall in love with. So I was shocked to see this statistic that according to the American Gaming Association, one quarter of American adults wager on March Madness. That's about 18 million more folks than bet on the Super Bowl. What do you think it is about this tournament that spurs so much excitement? I think it's because everyone understands the concept of a bracket. Like we make brackets for all sorts of activities that we do, our favorite movies, characters, like I've been in a best dressed bracket. I mean, there are a lot of different fun ways to think about data and we think about it in a bracket form. So I think it's just very relatable and easy to consume. Plus you have kids who can fill these out based on the mascots that they like or the team's colors. That doesn't surprise me. It really is unlike any anything else except maybe the Super Bowl where it just becomes such a cultural phenomenon and you can access it as a five-year-old or as an 85-year-old. <laughs> okay, who's in your final four? Okay, so on the men's side, it is Alabama, Indiana, Marquette, and Kansas. On the women's side, South Carolina, Iowa, Indiana, and Yukon. So Yukon would be in the final four for the 15th consecutive year, which is just mind-boggling. Nicole Auerbach, senior writer with The Athletic. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Close neighbors, affluent democracies, U.S. allies. Despite having all these things in common, ties between South Korea and Japan have been so frosty that their leaders have not held a bilateral summit for 12 years. That is, until today, in Tokyo. As NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, the news is sure to be welcomed in Washington. After an 85-minute-long summit, President Yoon Song-yeol and his host, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, told reporters that their two countries are beginning a new chapter. Kishida illustrated his point with a springtime metaphor. This week, as the cherry blossoms bloomed in Tokyo, we welcomed the president of South Korea to Japan for the first bilateral visit in about 12 years, after going through a long winter. The leaders announced they would resume reciprocal visits and normalize intelligence sharing. They pledged to cooperate on security challenges such as North Korea, which launched what appeared to be an intercontinental ballistic missile just hours before the summit. But underlying problems remain, including a historical feud over Koreans forced to work for Japanese companies during World War II. The two sides had been deadlocked over the issue until this month, when South Korea unilaterally suggested a solution. This is not an agreement. Daniel Snyder is a Stanford University expert on U.S. policy towards Asia. In some ways, the visit of President Yun to Japan is a recognition of the failure to reach an agreement. In 2018, South Korea's Supreme Court ordered two Japanese companies to compensate Koreans who were forced to work for them. The companies refused, arguing that the issue had been settled when Japan and South Korea established diplomatic ties in 1965. But President Yun has basically made a political decision uh, that the improving relations with Japan is strategically too important to his broader agenda to let that be an obstacle. So South Korea proposed compensating the laborers through a Korean foundation, to which Japanese firms could contribute if they want to. The surviving forced laborers have made it clear they want to be compensated by Japan, not South Korea. 
Seoul-based lawyer Jang Yun-mi says South Korea's government can't legally compensate the laborers against their will. The Yoon Song-yeol government's plan goes against the ruling by the South Korean Supreme Court, she points out. And as to whether this plan will advance a political and diplomatic resolution, she adds, many people in South Korea don't think so. A recent Gallup poll shows around 60 percent of South Koreans oppose Yoon's plan. The main opposition party has said Yoon should push Japan at the summit to compensate and apologize to the laborers. But Yoon dismissed that suggestion at his press conference. If we seek compensation, that will return all the problems to square one. Yoon could use some help from Prime Minister Kishida to sell his plan at home. Kishida praised Yoon's plan as helpful, and he invoked past statements by Japan's government expressing remorse for its actions in World War II. But Yoshihide Soya, an international relations expert at Keio University, says Kishida is not likely to go beyond past government statements. If he comes out too explicitly about the statement, that will clearly ignite some backlash from conservatives. Daniel Snyder wonders if the Biden administration could nudge Tokyo to do more to help Seoul sell its plan. I doubt it, actually, because Japanese are giving the Biden administration, giving the United States most of what they want already. And, I mean, in many ways, they're the model ally. South Korea's President Yoon will head to Washington next month for a state visit with President Biden. If his gamble succeeds, Yoon may be able to offer his host something U.S. presidents have sought for decades. Two Asian allies who have put aside their disputes and are ready to start working towards a U.S.-led tripartite alliance in Asia. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The struggle to find affordable or just available child care is real for parents across the country, and it's worse in rural areas. Parents are often left cobbling a plan together because there may be no daycare available for miles, and in some cases, there's just no daycare at all. Excaret Nunez of Harvest Public Media has more. Oh, I see mommy too. It's pickup time for the kids at the Stillwell Schools Daycare in Stillwell, Oklahoma. All the children here have parents who work for the small town school. The school district opened the daycare in late 2019 in an effort to try and recruit new teachers. We have people that would love to work at Stillwell, but they've they've told us that they can't take the job because we don't have daycare. That's Assistant Superintendent Matthew Brunk, who helped start the district's daycare. Brunk proposed the idea after he and his wife moved to Stillwell and had a difficult time finding any child care in town for their two-year-old. So, I mean, talk about panic. We had no idea what we were going to do. Daycare can be difficult to find across the country, but it's especially hard in rural communities. A study by the Center for American Progress calls rural areas childcare deserts and says nearly 60% of rural families don't have any access to childcare. Shoshana Inwood, a rural sociologist at Ohio State University, says that puts a financial strain on families. When families don't have access to childcare, somebody needs to leave the workforce or to stay home and take care of the children. So that's sacrificing additional household income. And that was exactly the case for Ashley Fikowski. She has three kids. Two of them are twins. And this day, they're playing and blowing kisses. I'm going to get your baby, 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 baby. Fikowski lives on the outskirts of Rolla, Missouri, 
100 miles southwest of St. Louis, and she says the physical distance between any daycare and her family is a major issue. The only childcare options she would be comfortable with are at least an hour away. We were really surprised having moved from St. Louis that there was no childcare um, unless you went through a church. Vykowski stayed home and planned to re-enter the workforce in 2020 when her first child was in kindergarten. But then she learned she was pregnant with twins. The decision kind of made itself, but I really struggled with it a lot, especially at first. I was like so ready to return to work. Vykowski and her husband are now hoping to move out of their small town to be closer to family and childcare so she can go back to work. The childcare drought in rural areas, just like in urban ones, is partially due to childcare workers' pay, typically less than $12 an hour. Maureen Coffey, an early childhood policy analyst for the Center for American Progress, says in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, Congress helped by approving the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan. She says they allocated more than $40 billion to fight the childcare drought. When it comes to how that's impacted rural communities, over 30,000 programs in rural counties have gotten ARP funding. And these funds reached at least one provider in almost 97% of rural counties. Back in Stillwell, Oklahoma, Matthew Brunk says it was that federal money that allowed the district to open a new daycare this month. That meant fewer families on the wait list and less of a shortage of childcare options in this rural town. But it's a relief that may be fleeting since much of the federal funds for daycare in the coronavirus bill expires next year. For NPR News, I'm ex Nunez in Stillwell, Oklahoma. You're listening to All Things Considered. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, renewable energy getting pushback in rural parts of the country. And in about five minutes, musicians chosen to play at the huge South by Southwest Fest in Austin say they need to get paid better. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Clouds have settled in and should spend the night. Temperatures about 35 tonight. Tomorrow could be another mild day, possibly reaching the low 50s. More clouds, though. We could see the sunshine eventually on Saturday, comfortable, right about 50 degrees. And then for Sunday, lots of sunshine, but windy and cooler, down around 38 degrees. Bruins are on the road out in Winnipeg to face the Jets. 8 o'clock start time tonight. It is a day off for the Celtics and for the Red Sox in spring training. The time is 5.49. If Beale Street could talk, it would have plenty of stories to share, including one about a storied high school band. Sometimes I'm up there and I'm like, I can't believe we're doing this. This is amazing, you know. Memphis, Tennessee is home to the oldest high school band in the country. We'll take you there tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In classrooms all over the country, students are recording interviews, writing out scripts, and sitting down at a microphone to tell their stories. Yep, NPR's Student Podcast Challenge is up and running. It's the fifth year, and entries are already starting to roll in. Janet Ujung Lee of our education team brings us a sample of some standout early submissions. 
As an education reporter, I love this entry from five middle schoolers in Weddington Matthews, North Carolina. They take on a policy question we've been asking for a long time. How many students in a classroom is too many? They put that question to one of their science teachers, Mrs. Pooler. When there's so many, I find it hard to give individual attention to students because other students will get off task. So that part of the behavior management becomes a concern with large classes. Mrs. Pooler's husband also teaches at the school, and Mr. Pooler struggles with classroom management too. Do you ever find it hard to control your class? Every single day. So these students set out to interview their classmates. What if every class could have more than one teacher? How many teachers are in one of your classes? One. Do you think there should be more than two teachers in a class? No, Ms. Pooler has a handle. How many teachers are in one of your classes? I just got one. Do you think there should be more than two teachers in a class? I mean, I don't really see a reason for there to be more than two teachers. Two months into this year's student podcast challenge, more than 200 students have submitted their work. And as you can imagine, not a lot of them deal with education policy. Hi. I'm Lucia McNaney-Fletched, and this is my story. During school, if you went through the day with me, you'd see me shuffling and dancing throughout the halls. Lucia is a high schooler at the Bush School in Seattle. And like she says, she loves dance. But making a podcast about it? It filled her with new emotions and a deep appreciation for her dance teacher. I felt this flood of joy and happiness, and I realized... The dance for me wasn't just about my own love of movement anymore. It was about this new feeling that I am who I am because of some very important people who are in my life from a very early age. Another student from Seattle, Bella Stevenson, interviewed a handful of people in her hometown. Her friends, family, even strangers. The high school senior asked everyone the same first question. What do you consider home? Bella answers the question too. And she brings us to her father's hometown in Montana. Sitting on the porch and smelling the summer air while the sun slowly falls behind the mountains of Big Sky, Montana. Watching the sunset fills me with an indescribable feeling, as if I've lived this life before. I feel safe, I feel complete, and most of all, I feel at home. The examples we just listened to are intimate, personal stories. But every year, we also get a lot of entries that are kind of like a talk show. And many of them display incredible chemistry between students. On today's episode, guys, we have Madam CJ Walker, the queen herself. Like this podcast from Skya Mokwi and JJ Majorana, high school seniors in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Their podcast celebrates people of color who are often left out of history books. And in the first episode, they spotlight a Black entrepreneur who founded her own cosmetics line in the early 1900s. She's actually here in the studio today. Hey, madam. I'm kidding. She's actually not here. Gotcha. (laughs) To be clear, these students did not interview someone who died in 1919. But they share the story of Madam C.J. Walker, who had a scalp disorder that led to hair loss. She spent years creating natural remedies and products for growing hair. And with only $1.25, she launched her own line of hair products and straighteners for African-American women called Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. So you just listened to a few examples of what your podcast could sound like. And you still got plenty of time. Teachers and students... This is your friendly reminder to enter NPR's Student Podcast Challenge. Deadline is April 28. Good luck. Janet Ujang Lee, NPR News.
Support for the NPR Student Podcast Challenge comes from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. South by Southwest music is currently underway in Austin, Texas. Every year, the festival brings in millions of international fans and dollars to the Texas capital. Working musicians are the backbone of the festival, and some say they are getting paid a pittance to play. Now they're asking for more. From member station KUT in Austin, Andrew Weber reports. Audrey Campbell and her band Pleasure Venom were in their second of three shows in 24 hours. They're at the Austin Bar, Hole in the Wall. During the break, she thanked the crowd and the folks who put on the show, joking that they paid them a decent wage. Uh, Thank you guys for paying us adequately (laughs) to do this. (laughs) Uh, We really appreciate you guys. It's the worst kept secret in Austin's music scene. South by Southwest's wages aren't great, and they haven't changed in more than a decade. A band that plays the festival gets $250. For this show, though, Audrey and her band made three times that. But it's unofficial. The show is put on by the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, a nonprofit that helps artists get paid. It was started by New York musician Joey Leneve de Francesco. It was a low wage 10 years ago, and it's uh, essentially meaningless wage now. The festival started nearly 40 years ago. Since then, it's brought billions of dollars to Austin. It's helped the city secure a profile as a tech capital, and it's been bought by Penske Media, a multi-billion dollar company. De Francesco says artists aren't profiting. In fact, they lose money playing the festival. It starts with a $55 application fee, then there's room and board, parking, food. De Francesco says playing for exposure at South by Southwest isn't fair. They think they're a mega corporation. You know, same reason Spotify, Live Nation, Ticketmaster, right? They don't want to respect musicians either because they think we have no power. So his group is pushing the festival to pay at least $750 in no application fee. In a statement, South by Southwest said it's going to reevaluate its wages ahead of next year's festival and said, quote, it's committed to creating professional opportunities for artists. True, South by Southwest often markets itself as a place to be discovered for musicians like Audrey Campbell from Pleasure Venom, but she doesn't buy that. She doesn't need the exposure. I paid all the dues at this point. You know, I've done enough free shows, but I've done it all and it's like I don't have anything to prove. She and her band have opened for big legacy punk bands like L7 and Bikini Kill, not because of exposure at the festival, but because of their work. After her set, Campbell admits being outspoken about low pay at South by Southwest could affect her chances of playing at the festival next year, but she wants to say something for musicians who may be afraid to speak out. So it feels like my responsibility to say something for artists that might feel small and don't want, don't feel like they have like the confidence to say it because they feel like they're gonna lose a job. Guess what? I have always said whatever I want and I still get work. Campbell admits ultimately it's up to South by Southwest whether it pays artists more, but hopes, at least, they made some noise. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Weber in Austin. It's all things considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us this evening. Should have cloudy skies while we sleep tonight. Should bottom out around 35 degrees. Could hit the low 50s tomorrow. Gray skies in for the day. And then on Saturday, could have a damp start before the sunshine moves in. Back in the low 50s. For Sunday, mostly sunny, windy, and chillier. May not break 40 degrees. It is 44 degrees now in the Boston area at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Camp Maravista, where kids ages 8 to 17 discover their best selves in the New Hampshire mountains. Enrolling now at ayf.com slash Maravista. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. Senator Ed Markey says President Biden's approval of the Willow oil drilling project in Alaska is an environmental injustice. Biden's decision to allow the drilling has divided Democrats. Markey's take is coming up. Today is Thursday, March 16th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, there's a growing backlash against renewable energy in rural communities across the United States. Please do not sell us out for the solar industry and the profiteering of a small group of landowners. How a conservative operative is stoking some of the opposition by spreading misinformation and flooding around the fertile ground around Monterey, California has turned berry fields into small lakes, leaving workers without jobs, food, and in some cases, housing. It's 601. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A group of major Wall Street banks are rushing to the rescue of embattled First Republic Bank, Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo, along with Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, BNY Mellon, PNC Bank, State Street, Truist, and U.S. Bank, announcing they'll be depositing a total of $30 billion into First Republic. Moved by the 11 financial institutions being called a show of confidence in First Republic, and banks of all sizes. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was on Capitol Hill today. Yellen telling members of the Senate Finance Committee the nation's banking system remains sound. Yellen is the first Biden administration official to face lawmakers over the decision to move to protect uninsured money to failed regional banks, one in California, the other in New York. This week's actions demonstrate our resolute commitment to ensure that our financial system remains strong and the depositors' savings remain safe. Some have called the bank rescue with guaranteed deposits well above the FDIC limit of bailout. Administration officials counter the money comes from fees and not taxpayer dollars. 
Congress is a step closer to repealing the U.S. war authorizations against Iraq. As NPR's Deidre Walsh reports, it comes around the 20-year mark since the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Congress has not asserted its own authority to approve military action in more than 20 years. Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia says the 2002 and 1991 war authorizations against Iraq are out of date, and the legislative branch needs to vote to end them. Congress must exercise our Article I authority over war, peace, and diplomacy, and that's what this bill and this debate is about. Supporters of the legislation argue the war is long over. Saddam Hussein is dead, and the U.S. now has good diplomatic ties with Iraq key given tensions with Iran. A Senate vote on the bill is expected next week. Timing in the House is unclear. President Biden supports repealing these authorities. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. saw its wettest December through February on record this year. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports. The western and northern U.S. experienced a lot of rain and snow this winter. That includes California, which endured a dozen heavy storms. Federal weather forecasters say that's good news for reservoirs and overall drought conditions in much of the west. However, as all of that snow melts, it could cause serious flooding. The upper Mississippi, from the Twin Cities to St. Louis, is at risk for major flooding this spring from snowmelt. And even with all the rain and snow, drought persists and is expected to worsen across the southern plains. That means higher risk of wildfire there and in the southwest going into the summer. Climate change makes both heavy precipitation and intense drought more common. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 371 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking the city council to approve a new policy to discourage the use of fossil fuels in new Boston buildings. Today, Wu said the building codes her administration is pursuing encourage developers to use all-electric hookups. It would impose higher costs on projects that install gas hookups for heating and cooking. At the same time, the mayor announced today the city will commit $10 million to make existing multifamily affordable housing projects more energy efficient. The International Association of Firefighters is suing the Quincy-based group that sets national standards for protective firefighting gear. The union says the gear contains toxic PFAS chemicals. PFAS have been linked to numerous health concerns, including cancer. Here's WBOR's Gabriella Emanuel. The union says firefighting gear has to contain PFAS in order for it to be considered up to code by the National Fire Protection Association, or NFPA. The union claims that's the result of ongoing collusion between the NFPA and members of the manufacturing industry. Union President Edward Kelly demanded changes outside of Norfolk County Superior Court in Dedham. We want to know why they won't change the standard. We want clean bunker gear that's not going to kill us. Kelly says last year, nearly 75% of firefighters died of job-related cancer. The NFPA says it has not yet been served with a complaint and cannot comment on the lawsuit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The state is expanding access to programs that let high school students take college courses and earn credits for free. Today, the Healy administration announced it's launching nine so-called early college partnerships. That brings to nearly 60 the number of high schools that take part. Most are in cities that reach students who have been historically underrepresented in higher ed. The state estimates nearly 7,800 students will be enrolled in early college programs in the next school year. And the state's first cabinet-level veteran secretary is getting to work. 
Governor Maura Healey appointed John Santiago earlier this year. He tells WBUR that he's glad Massachusetts is dedicating more resources to its veterans, and he's proud to lead the effort. Sometimes like people like to tag these folks as completely separate and different, um, but a lot of times they're just your next-door neighbor. They have a job, they're doing well, they're college-educated. They're not all suffering from homelessness, mental health issues. Sometimes they are, and that's why we're here to provide services for them. Santiago is an Army veteran and former ER doctor. In the forecast, mostly cloudy skies this evening, tonight and tomorrow. Tonight's lows should be around 35. Tomorrow's highs in the low 50s. The weekend starts up with some clouds, but should be sunny by the afternoon. Still mild, around 50 degrees on Saturday. Sunday should grace us with sunshine. Highs about 40 tops, some strong winds around. This is WBUR at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The uppermost part of Alaska is called the North Slope. It contains a national petroleum reserve roughly the size of the state of Indiana. This week, the Biden administration approved a major new oil extraction project in that federal reserve, the ConocoPhillips Willow Project. The decision has divided Democrats. Supporters say it will provide jobs. Opponents say it makes it harder to slow climate change, including Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who chairs the Senate Subcommittee on Clean Air, Climate and Nuclear Safety. Welcome to All Things Considered. No, great to be with you. Thank you. You have called this decision an environmental injustice. Do you think the thousands of jobs that supporters say it will create are not worth the trade-off, or are you skeptical that this actually will provide that number of jobs? Well, the question is, what is the long-term impact to our planet? What additional consequences are there to the additions to not only what damage we're doing to the planet, but what example it's sending to other countries in the world. So President Biden has been the most effective climate champion the Oval Office has ever seen. He signed into law the most ambitious climate and clean energy legislation in our history. And unfortunately, this decision sends the wrong message to international partners, to Alaska natives and local communities. Uh, to whom the project poses a health and safety threat. But federal lawmakers who represent Alaska from both parties support this plan. Here's Democratic Congresswoman Mary Peltola, the first Alaska native in Congress, speaking with Liz Ruskin of Alaska Public Media. Yes, I agree. There is a climate crisis, but the whole world can't tell Alaska to shutter its business until the world has, has come up with solutions. Senator Markey, you represent the people of Massachusetts. Why do you think your views should outweigh those of Alaska's delegation? Well, I hope my colleagues are also speaking to uh, Alaska natives who have raised the alarm on what this project will mean for the Inupiat communities who live in the region. Uh, Alaska native communities are already seeing their very way of life threatened as they suffer from rising temperatures and other impacts of the climate crisis. And I've been talking to those Native American communities in Alaska as well, and their voices should be heard and considered. Now, environmental groups have filed legal action to block drilling. And so where do you see this going? Do you expect it to be tied up in court for a long time? 
Well, I am, um, I'm glad to see that there are bold advocates in Alaska and across the country who are willing to do everything in their power to reverse this decision. Um, obviously, uh, we're moving towards an all-electric vehicle future in our country and on the planet. Uh, and every new electric vehicle displaces a car which would be using oil. So from my perspective, we need to continue to fight this project uh, as an innovation clean energy revolution rapidly unfolds because of the Inflation Reduction Act that Joe Biden led uh, and uh, signed into law. You say we're moving toward an all-electric vehicle future, but we're not there yet, and the U.S. right now still depends on fossil fuels, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine made very clear. Is there a danger that if the U.S. stops new oil production before renewable alternatives have scaled up to meet the country's energy demands, there will be a gap? No. Our goal in the United States is to have 50 percent of all new vehicles be electric by the year 2030. But the question Uh, is whether electricity production, solar production, wind production, renewable production generally meets the demand for energy in the United States, even if the assembly lines are churning out the electric vehicles. Well, in the amount of time it would take big oil to finally fulfill their long broken promise of making us energy independent, we could replace that demand for dirty oil with a demand for clean energy like wind and solar and all electric vehicles and battery storage technologies. So my belief is that we are now going to see a vertical path for implementation of each of those new technologies. The private marketplace is responding dramatically Uh, And uh, from my perspective, big oil really doesn't care about consumers. They care about corporate profits. Uh, That's what they're focused on. And uh, by the time, you know, we have finished this battle, we will have seen the big oil business plan uh, destroyed, uh, both here and around the world. Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, thank you very much. Thank you. As Senator Markey mentioned, ramping up renewable energy is key to the U.S. plan to fight climate change. But there is a growing backlash against big wind and solar plants in some parts of rural America. An investigation by NPR's Michael Copley and Miranda Green from Floodlight found that a longtime conservative operative is stoking opposition to solar projects by spreading misinformation. Roger Hauser's family has been farming in Page County for generations. He raises cattle about 90 miles southwest of Washington, D.C. Mm. Mm. 1,200-pound cows. Those calves are 150 to 200 now. They were born in September and October. Ranching's tough business. Calves have been selling for about the same price the past few years, while costs for fuel and fertilizer have been going up. We're as sustainable as we can be. And we take good care of the land. But (laughs) we're running out of time. So it was a big deal when Hauser found another use for his 500 acres. A company offered to lease the land to build a solar plant that could power about 25,000 homes. Hauser says it was a good offer. He could graze sheep around the solar panels, keep the properties one parcel, and get more money for retirement. And then the main thing was the electricity it would generate and the good it would do made it feel good all the way around. But not everybody's feeling good about it. A group of locals eventually joined forces with a nonprofit called Citizens for Responsible Solar to block development of large solar plants. A big concern was they'd ruin the landscape. It's beautiful out here. 
Yeah, it's 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 pretty. It's open ground, but it's like you know some panels on it. It's not going to change it. Citizens for Responsible Solar was founded by Susan Ralston. She was special assistant to former President George W. Bush. Ralston officially jumped into solar fights in 2019. She wanted to stop a project near her home in Culpeper, Virginia. She said at a hearing of Culpeper's Planning Commission in 2021, the big solar plants threaten rural communities and the environment. So please do not sell us out for the solar industry and the profiteering of a small group of landowners. But Ralston's ambitions always seem to extend beyond Culpeper. She tapped operatives who worked behind the scenes with some of the most powerful people in conservative politics to help set up and run Citizens for Responsible Solar. The group's treasurer worked for Republican politicians like Marco Rubio and J.D. Vance. The firm that handles official paperwork for Citizens for Responsible Solar has represented at least two dozen conservative groups. Some were headed by Leonard Leo, a conservative who's helped reshape the Supreme Court. NPR and Floodlight haven't confirmed if these groups are connected to Citizens for Responsible Solar. And when Ralston was launching Citizens for Responsible Solar, a consulting firm she owns got almost $300,000 from the foundation of a GOP donor named Paul Singer. Singer's investment firm is the top shareholder in a major coal company. It's unclear what that money went to. Now, four years since its founding, Ralston's group has helped activists fighting solar projects in at least a dozen states. Jim Thompson's an activist in Ohio. We spoke while he was driving home from work. There's times you get down in the valleys that you don't know that you're making a darn difference and you reach out to people like Susan and share your frustration. You can get some insight as to what you might be doing wrong. Michael Berger runs the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University. He says Ralston's activities reflect how climate change has been politicized. What your reporting is pointing to is a well-mobilized, well-funded national effort to foment local opposition to renewable energy. Ralston has said Citizens for Responsible Solar didn't get money from fossil fuel interests. She declined to talk to NPR and Floodlight. She said in an email that she isn't opposed to solar, just projects built on farmland and timberland. But her group's rhetoric suggests a broader goal, undermining public support for the industry. That's according to Ronald Myers. He studies citing issues around renewable energy at Virginia Tech. People often have valid concerns about solar plants. They can hurt communities if they're poorly planned and built. But Myers says Citizens for Responsible Solar spreads misleading information about health and environmental risks, including that solar projects in rural areas wreck the land and contribute to climate change. I've sure seen their impact. It sowed seeds of alarm and distrust. In Page County, Hauser says he heard positive feedback at first when a solar company offered to lease his land. But then, he says local politics got involved. Anybody can stay and up in a public hearing and say anything, regardless of the facts or science or whatever. Residents said big solar plants would cause problems with stormwater runoff, ruin their views, and harm property values, along with the tourism and agriculture industries. Others falsely claimed solar panels would poison the groundwater, cause cancer. As the fight dragged on, a group called Page County Citizens for Responsible Solar appeared on Facebook. Ralston's organization applied pressure too, saying it hired a law firm to investigate the county's actions. It all ended last year. Page County effectively banned big solar plants. One official said he worried they'd hurt existing businesses without creating any long-term jobs. I mean, a lot of people still comment to me that they supported it and they wished it could have happened. But Hauser doesn't know how he could have gotten the county to a different outcome. The anti-solar people took it on as a cause, and it became a movement of its own. In small-town politics, you can have a small group of people become very vocal and seem very influential. Money's flowing into America's solar industry, and government analysts expect record development this year. All that growth means land-use fights like the one in Page County are going to keep flaring up. Michael Copley, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up tomorrow on Morning Edition, after a collapse and subsequent takeover by federal regulators, Silicon Valley Bank wants Massachusetts customers to come back. We'll explain what they're prepared to do. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition here at 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American Art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. Stocks ended the day on the upside today. The Dow grew by about one and two-tenths percent. S&P picked up even more territory. It rose one and three-quarters percent. The Nasdaq grew by nearly two and a half percent. The owner of local pizza shops is facing forced labor and other charges. Stavros Papantoniadis of Westwood owns Stash's Pizza in Dorchester and Roslindale. He was arrested this morning. Federal prosecutors say he repeatedly used the threat of deportation to force some employees to work against their will. They say he withheld pay and demanded employees work six to seven days a week. He also said that he physically assaulted one employee over the course of nearly 15 years. He's being held in custody until a hearing next week on the case and has entered no plea. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. Certapro.com, that's Serta with a C. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Plenty of clouds tonight and tomorrow. Tonight's lows around 35, tomorrow's highs in the low 50s. The weekend starts with some clouds on Saturday, sunny by the afternoon, though still mild around 50. Sunny on Sunday, chillier, highs about 38. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. California is finally seeing a break from the rain. That is giving people time to take stock of the damage in flooded areas. Areas including the town of Pajaro in the state's central coast. A levee broke there last weekend and forced thousands of residents, many of them farm workers, to evacuate. Farida Jabvalo Romero from member station KQED went there yesterday. And Farida, what did you see? The first thing is that the water has receded a lot in the main parts of town. And so I was able to drive through Main Street, mm-hmm. which was impossible just a couple of days ago when everything was underwater. Uh, and you could really tell the watermark about two to three feet up on building walls. You could tell the damage is going to be really extensive. I saw a beauty salon, for example, that was missing part of its front wall. There were cars still partly submerged in parking lots and Obviously, everything is closed right now, and nobody's allowed to move back in yet. Right. Well, I was going to ask, you've been telling me what it looks like. What about what people are saying, the people who live there? How are they doing? 
Yeah, well, this is a really low-income community, mostly Latino. Many people in the town of Pajaro are farm workers in fields nearby and in the region. Many are undocumented. They don't have an economic safety net. They're not eligible for unemployment insurance, and they wouldn't qualify for FEMA funds either. Yeah. Um, since they evacuated last week, uh, they've been living in shelters set up by the county or with relatives nearby. Uh, we've even heard of people sleeping in cars with their kids. And, you know, these are people who had really little before the flooding. Uh, they expected to start working this month harvesting strawberries, which is the, the top crop in Monterey County. But some fields are now lakes. They just look like lakes. So they don't know when they'll be able to work again. I spoke with Juana Juarez. She's a single mom of three. Me siento muy triste estando fuera de mi casa sabiendo que... Um, so she's saying that she was left with nothing. She's worried about feeding her kids and how she'll pay for rent with no work. Tell me more, Farida, about what kind of help is coming in. Well, there are two kinds of responses, right? One's by officials uh, in the county trying to deal with the emergency itself. They've patched up the levy that broke, set up shelters and other types of aid for residents. But I also saw community members, other farm workers that are stepping up to help too. They've been raising donations. They've been dropping bags of clothes because a lot of people fled with just what they were wearing. Uh, they're cooking meals and buying pizzas and cookies, you know, even though they're in the same situation of not knowing when they'll get to work. Yeah, that feeling of not knowing, not knowing so many things. Is there any sense yeah. of the timeline just on when some of these displaced people will be able to go home? Well, we're hearing it could be several weeks or even longer. Uh, the Monterey County Sheriff says there's a bunch of steps the county needs to take before they let people in safely back into their homes, uh, like making sure that the infrastructure is safe, uh, buildings, drinking water, checking for environmental hazards. Governor Gavin Newsom toured the damage yesterday. He committed to helping these communities in their recovery, but the damage is going to be really expensive, and they're still assessing the extent of it. Um, agriculture is huge here, a $4 billion industry, and, you know, the losses are expected to be huge. That is Farida Jabvalo-Romero from our member station KQED. Farida, thank you. Thank you. Just as public radio relies on pledge drives to support its programming, the Girl Scouts rely on cookie sales to fund their work. This cookie season, one Girl Scout in New Hampshire got upset with an ingredient in the cookie recipe and decided to do something about it. NHPR's Todd Bookman has the story of Sophia and why she's gone rogue. Sophia Hammond, age 11, has been a Girl Scout for more than half of her life. I stayed when I was five, so about six years, I guess. Six years of camping trips and community service and planting trees. Girl Scouts are a big part of her identity. Actually, everybody in Girl Scouts are like my best friends. Like we hang out at school and after school and all that. Sophia hopes one day to earn the Girl Scout equivalent of the Eagle Scout. It's called the Gold Award, which is what makes the next bite in this cookie story so surprising. Sophia has become a vocal critic of Girl Scout cookies, specifically one of the ingredients, palm oil. So palm oil causes 2% of major deforestation and climate change because of palm oil. 1,000 to 5,000 orangutans are killed every year. There also have been ties to child labor, human trafficking, and slavery 
in the harvesting of palm fruit. Where are you getting these facts from? I've been researching for a while, so I've been getting, up, getting them off the internet and in books and things like that. The exact impact of palm oil harvesting isn't exactly clear, and the crop does have its upsides compared to some others. But Sophia is far from the first to go anti-cookie. Girls and troops across the country in recent years have all raised concerns about palm oil. They've made YouTube videos and gone on morning talk shows. Who say those do dos the tag-alongs, the Thin Mints are actually bad for the environment. Yes, and I had a So one of our main things in Girl Scouts is it's in our pledge trying to make the world a better place. And I don't think that the ingredient in Girl Scout cookies is doing that. So I don't support it, and I want to try to do something else. Do something else. In this case... Bake her own cookies. Sophia went door to door in Plymouth, New Hampshire, offering her neighbors a chance to buy traditional Girl Scout cookies or cookies she would make using her grandma's recipes and ones found online. Then it worked. She wound up selling 138 boxes of real Girl Scout cookies and got orders for 44 dozen cookies that would be baked by an actual Girl Scout. But she never exactly asked permission to do this. If they do kick me out for me doing this and for me being an entrepreneur, even though they've taught me how to do it, I wouldn't be that upset. I assume you don't want to be sued. Yeah, I definitely don't want to be sued. No, I would never sue Sophia. This is Trisha Meller, the head of the Girl Scouts of the Green and White Mountains, the council that oversees all the troops in Vermont and New Hampshire. We're proud of Sophia for being passionate about an issue that she strongly believes in. That's what Girl Scouting is all about. What it's not about, according to the rules, though, is selling things other than official Girl Scout cookies during cookie season. But Meller said the Scouts have made changes about palm oil. Their corporate bakers pledge to use sustainably sourced palm, though critics say unsustainable oil still likely finds its way into the supply chain. It's a hard ingredient to just not use. It tastes good and keeps the cookies crispy. Sophia and her dad are now finalizing their own recipes with no palm oil. Teaspoon? Yeah. Baking soda? Half teaspoon? Clove. Half teaspoon. She collected all the odors back in January. Now it's crunch time, time to get baking. Nine minutes in the oven, then a taste test on the oatmeal and peanut butter cookies. Very good. <laughs> Two dozen down, 42 dozen more to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of work. It's going to take a while, but it's fun. Minus the cost of ingredients, Sophia is going to profit about $100 from her own cookies. She's donating that money back to her local troop. For NPR News, I'm Todd Bookman. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. Mostly cloudy skies tonight, lows around 35. Tomorrow, gray skies, highs in the low 50s. It's all over for the Dunkachino. Canton-based Duncan has pulled the iconic drink from its menu after more than two decades. Company tells CNN that removing the coffee hot chocolate concoction will make way for new products. No surprise, it is hinting of a possible Dunkachino comeback in the future. It's 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. SemesterOff.com.